If you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and our main text for this morning will be chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. In our last message on Sunday, January the 2nd of this month, we looked at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians as having for its theme the believer's model walk and his blessed hope. That hope of someday being caught up in the air to meet the Lord. That catching up in the air and changing of our mortal bodies into immortal bodies in a twinkling of an eye has been the Christian's blessed hope right from the very beginning, right from the time of our Lord's ascension into heaven and his promise to return for his own. Unfortunately, as time went on, man got into the picture with his own ideas and transformed the beauty of the simplicity of the believer's worship, and has subtly managed to steal away, bit by bit, the hope of his appearing. Unregenerated man has been the key player in organized religion ever since the beginning of time, substituting his own ideas in place of what the Almighty has decreed. Often this organized religion has been so convincing that it has even led the elect astray and in the process has managed to weaken their faith and to stagnate their testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Higher learning, scholarship, and specially trained men in modern thinking have been by and large responsible for dashing the hopes of the believer in Christ's imminent return. But the exhortation to all believers from Scripture itself is and always has been, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. And similarly, the Lord's own words to his own disciples when they were on the Mount of Olives, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Matthew 24, 4-5 It is, of course, no secret that we are living in an age of deception and great unrest. As the world quickly rushes to its destruction, there are certain wicked supernatural forces at work behind the scenes trying to manipulate the turn of events. And as time progresses, this spiritual activity will become more severe 
and its effects on unregenerate man more evident, quickly stealing from him his last glimmer of hope for a better life here on this earth. But for the Christian, whoever looks upward, his blessed hope can never be destroyed so long as he by faith clings to his Savior's word. This morning I would like to look at the first part of chapter 5 in the first book of Thessalonians, verses 1 to 11, which deals with another aspect of the Lord's return. It is known as the Day of the Lord, a very frightening series of events and circumstances all joined together to form what the scriptures call the Day of the Lord. The Apostle Paul now begins the fifth chapter with a contrast of thought in relation to the previous chapter, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, in particular, which dealt with the rapture or the day of Christ. But here in chapter 5, verse 1, he writes, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. I would like for us to notice three very important facts that the Apostle Paul makes here in those opening verses concerning the day of the Lord. Number one, that of the time and the seasons, they have no need that he write to them. In other words, they do not need to know when the day of the Lord will come as long as they are Christians. We must remember that point. Secondly, in verse 2, he reminds them that although they already know this, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It will come when it comes, most unexpectedly, as a thief who breaks in at night while the landlord is sleeping. If the landlord, for instance, expected the thief, then he would not be asleep. He would be awake, prepared, waiting, and watching for this would-be thief. And thirdly, the Apostle Paul says that this day of the Lord, when it does come, will come with sudden destruction, and there will be no escape. Dearly beloved, it is not a pleasant thing, this day of the Lord. It is not what anyone in his right mind would be looking forward to or hoping for. It will be a time of horrendous destruction and judgment. The wrath and fury of God shall be poured upon this earth as never before witnessed by any generation, save perhaps that in Noah's time, when the flood waters came and they all perished. The Old Testament warns of that awful day many times. 
In Amos chapter 5, verses 16 to 20, we read, Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandman to mourning, and such as are skillful in lamentation to wailing. And in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? Then Zephaniah describes it in this way, in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. The great day of the Lord is, is near, it is near, and lasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloomness, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against high towns or towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land." The day of the Lord will be a most horrifying experience for all those who are left behind to endure it. The prophet Joel adds this about that terrible time period in Joel 2 verses 1 to 3. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and gloomness, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there shall not, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations." A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. This horrible time yet to come was also known as the time of Jacob's trouble. In Jeremiah 30 verse 7 records, Alas! For that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he 
shall be saved out of it. That's, of course, referring to Israel. The Lord will consume the wicked in that day, sparing none who have rejected his offer of mercy. In Malachi 4, verse 1, we read again about his wrath during that day, which is yet to come. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Finally, it is known as the Great Tribulation in the New Testament. Our Savior himself describes it in Matthew 24, verses 21 to 22, as a time of unprecedented tribulation, which according to the book of the Revelation and the book of Daniel will last seven years. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. I would like for us to notice that this day of the Lord, or the time of Jacob's trouble, or the great tribulation, is not one particular 24-hour day, but rather it is a time period which will include a whole series of events and circumstances of a terrible judgment poured upon this earth by God himself. God's long-suffering will finally come to an end, and his judgment upon a sinful Christ-rejecting world must finally fall. We see all around us today the beginnings of sorrows, the spread of violence, immorality, wars, famines, earthquakes, diseases, but all of these are a natural consequence of the curse. However, there is a time coming when God himself will say enough is enough and he will call his church home in the rapture, that blessed hope of all believers, and then and only then will he pour out his wrath on the rest of the world. But you see, the scriptures clearly tell us that the church will not undergo any part of the tribulation or the wrath of God. There are, unfortunately, those who teach that the church will undergo, at least in part, the wrath of God's judgment. There are others who teach that there is no rapture to look forward to at all, but that God will put all believers through that horrendous time of punishment and deliver them through it. Nothing could be farther from the truth. For the scriptures teach in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 
and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Furthermore, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And what better comfort than from the very own lips of the Savior himself as he gave the promise to the church of Philadelphia, which is a type in Revelation 3.10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. As Christians, though we presently dwell on this earth, our citizenship is in heaven. Our affections should be set on things above, not on things on the earth. And though there will yet be horrifying times ahead for us on this earth, that is not the believer's destiny. That is to look forward to the wrath of God, but rather we are to look forward, we are to look upwards for the Savior who is coming to snatch his church away from the wrath yet to come. Dearly beloved, know this one comfort, lest I have missed my point. The scriptures do not teach that the church will undergo any or even part of the great tribulation. However, the earthly elect, which is Israel, God's chosen people, will go through the great tribulation and they will be delivered through it and then they will experience the glorious restoration of Israel when the King of Glory returns to this earth with the church to establish his millennial reign. All of those events are included in the day of the Lord, but it cannot start until the church has been safely removed from this earth. Now getting back to verse 4 in Thessalonians chapter 5, after our slight digression, the Apostle Paul reminds these believers at Thessalonica that they are not in darkness concerning this day. The day of the Lord should not overtake them as a thief. Since they are in Christ, since they are in the light and no longer in darkness, that is, no longer in the kingdom of darkness, from which they have been supernaturally and spiritually delivered, they should now not sleep as the unsaved do, but that they should watch and be sober, verses 5 to 6. For the Christian who is waiting expectantly for the coming of the Lord, 
His return will not be as a thief that cometh in the night. The Christian who is looking for his coming should be alert, awake, seeking ways how to serve him, making his truth known to others, trying to witness for him so that more will come to know him and wait for him too. We, in the light of what the day of the Lord holds in store for the unsaved, should make a more determined effort to witness for him and to pluck, so to speak, the unsaved out of the fire to come. If we read carefully verses 6 to 11, we will see at least five commandments of the Lord which Paul uses as exhortations to those new believers at Thessalonica. And the first of these is in verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. This, of course, does not refer to literal sleep, but it does get its significance figuratively from actual sleep. When a person sleeps, he or she is totally out of touch with what is going on around them. He or she is not able to actively respond to or have an influence upon the events which are taking place. They, in their sleep, are totally passive. Thus, the Apostle Paul uses the figure of speech. Let us not sleep as others do or do others. Christians are not to be passive, but are to be active. Passive channels for God rarely influence for good. Passive channels rarely win souls for Christ. Verse 8, but let us watch and be sober. Christians are to be constantly watching. If they do not watch, they do not see. And if they do not see, they cannot respond. The Christian today is surrounded with many temptations and many snares. Though now a child of God through faith in Christ by the grace of God, the Christian still has the old sin nature as well. And the devil will at every turn seek ways in which he can cause the believer to stumble, to sin, to disobey or to dishonor his testimony for the Lord. So we must watch, we must guard against such things. Then not only must the Christian watch, but he must be sober or careful. We must be careful in many respects, careful to walk according to the word of God, careful to fulfill our responsibilities, whether spiritual, social, domestic, and careful to be self-controlled at all times so that our disposition, our character, our state of mind may reflect the character of the one who indwells us. First Peter 5, 8 tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. 
It is hard enough that the believer contends with his own flesh and the world, but he must also contend with the devil, who is his most formidable foe. Then we see in verse 8 how we as believers are to be sober by putting on the breastplate of faith and of love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. The Apostle Paul again uses simple symbolic representations here in the form of a breastplate and a helmet. For a Roman soldier, his most vital defensive armor was the breastplate, that part of his armor which protected his heart, his lungs, and vital organs should a weapon penetrate this part of his body, then of course life would quickly seep out of him. The Christian too has a figurative piece of defensive armor, the breastplate of faith and love. Faith and love protect our heart in the midst of difficulties. Faith and love are what give us confidence in God even in the midst of a world that seems to be slipping into total disaster. Thus the Christian must put on daily the breastplate of faith and love. Then there is the helmet, that piece of armor which protected the head, the eyes, the ears, and the brain, the seat of communication. Once an injury occurs to any one of these vital organs, the soldier can then do no battle, for he cannot see to find his way, neither can he hear to get his commandments straight. His battle is over. So too for the Christian, the helmet is indispensable in the battle of life. His helmet here is his hope of salvation. Oh, how important this piece of spiritual armor is for the believer. How important it is for each believer to be sure of his salvation. There is nothing more damaging to a new believer in the midst of a heated battle than to lose his helmet, to lose his hope of salvation. And the apostle understood this very clearly. So in the very next three verses, verses 9 to 11, he reassures these new believers with this most beautiful thought. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort together, yourselves together and edify one another even as also ye do. Look, says the apostle, God has not appointed the Christian to the day of wrath which is yet to come. God is not going to leave his church here on earth when he is going to pour out his judgments during those terrible years of the tribulation. The church, that is the body of believers or the body of Christ, has been appointed by God to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, this may warrant our time uh, in some further explanation, this word salvation. Salvation includes a whole series of redemptive acts and processes. It includes such things as justification, redemption, grace, propitiation, imputation, forgiveness of sins, sanctification, and glorification. If I might use as a symbol an umbrella. Our salvation is like that umbrella. But that umbrella is made up of many individual parts. It has spokes in it, which are connected at even intervals to different sections of the protective lining. And when that umbrella is opened up, all the individual parts spring into action at the same time. Each part is an integral part of the umbrella. So too, each of these individual aspects of our salvation, such as justification, imputation, forgiveness, sanctification, and glorification, etc., are like the individual spokes of the umbrella which spring into action all at once when the umbrella is opened. That is, when salvation becomes official in a believer's life. And when does it become official? The instant he or she believes and receives Christ as their Savior. At that very instant, the Christian, not only in the eyes of God, has the forgiveness of sins and a newness of life, but he or she also has all of these other aspects, some of which may be future. And so sometimes the scriptures may talk about salvation in three tenses, present, past, and future. When we become saved, our sins are all forgiven. All of our past sins have been taken care of. That is the past aspect. But then there is also the present aspect. The Christian is daily being saved from the habit and domination or dominion of sin. That is where the intercessory work of Christ comes in. He is daily interceding on our behalf and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. We read in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And finally, there is the future aspect of our salvation, which though future, as far as we are concerned, in God's eyes, it is already done. Romans 8.30 says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. That is future. But God sees it as already done. So one day our salvation will be, in a sense, fully realized when the rapture is come. And our corruptible bodies are changed into incorruptible bodies. 
and our sin nature is destroyed and put away permanently, we will be exactly like our blessed Savior in character and in thought and mind. In 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, we see this thought. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. What tremendously comforting thoughts. We as Christians have been destined not to the wrath of God, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. That whether we wake, that is, are alive, or whether we sleep, that is, are dead, we should live with him together. Many millions of believers have already died. Though their bodies are in the ground and their spirits and souls are presently with the Lord, in one sense they have missed the rapture, because they will not be alive when they are transformed. But in another sense they don't miss out, because their bodies will be resurrected and transformed into new incorruptible bodies, reunited with their soul and spirit, before those who are still alive are thus transformed. We shall all, says the scripture, meet the Lord in the air when he comes to take his church home. The fourth and the fifth exhortations come in the 11th verse, which concludes the first division of this chapter. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Thus our comfort is this, that as believers we should be expectantly looking not for the day of the Lord, which brings with it God's judgment, but rather for the coming of the Lord Jesus to take us to be with him and to be like him forever. This should be our comfort. And this is also where we will stop this morning. Now, before I step down from this platform, let me ask you this question. Are you all expectantly waiting for the Lord's return in the air for you? That is the rapture. If so, that is good. Because if you are a Christian, then if he comes while you are still alive, you will experience that amazing transformation from corruptible into incorruptible. But if you are not a Christian this morning, then I'm obligated to tell you that you will have no part in the rapture. You will go through God's wrath, known as the day of the Lord. So be sure where you stand. The Apostle Paul pleaded with the Corinthians to examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 
If you are not sure, then be sure this morning. Repent of your sins and turn to Christ and trust him to save you. He shed his blood to pay for your sins and for my sins. He died and was buried and after three days rose from the dead. He is alive this morning, seated on the right hand of God the Father, still waiting to save all who will come to him by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for our blessed Savior this morning. We thank thee that there was a time when we were totally lost and headed for a Christless eternity. That thou hast sent thy faithful servants into our lives to witness to us, to tell us about the love of God how to gain heaven and shun hell. We thank thee for each and every one of those faithful ones who are, in most cases, now in thy presence, glorifying thee. Help us, O Lord, to be like those faithful servants of old who counted not danger to themselves, who were not ashamed to witness for their Savior. And help us, Lord, to walk in newness of life, to be more faithful than we have in the past, to be more desirous of seeing thy face and to look earnestly for thy return in the air for us. We ask thee now to part us with thy blessing and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together next Lord's Day around his table. For we ask it again in his name and for his glory. Amen. Mm -hmm.